Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. It's Monday, the 27th of February. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to the economist and professor at University College London's Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, Mariano Mazzicato, who has also published an extraordinary new book with Rosie Collington called The Big Con, How the Consulting Industry Weakens Our Businesses, Infantilizes Our Governments, and Warps Our Economies. We discuss how consultancies such as McKinsey or Deloitte are enfeebling our own governments, whether capitalism can be fixed, and why governments need to be more confident. Mariana Mazzicato, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm going to start with an easy one. Is capitalism broken? Definitely. Capitalism is broken because we have different ways to do capitalism, and we've forgotten that. So we've become much less ambitious in terms of how we govern all the different actors in the system, and my work focuses on how we've misgoverned public sector administration. You've said in an interview, one of the underpinning ideas of most of your work is this idea that society has underimagined the role that the state can play and should play. I was wondering if you could expand on this idea for our listeners. Sure. What got us to the moon was a type of government agency and investment, which we no longer have. I don't think we would get to the moon today with the language we have around, at best, the role of the state in fixing market failures, enabling the private sector, redistributing the wealth created in the private sector, fixing different problems along the way, filling the gap, facilitating, which means making things easier for other actors. It actually required ambition, mission-oriented thinking, crowding in other forms of investment, definitely in the private sector in that case. And we've forgotten that. So I believe it's impossible today to solve our 17 sustainable 
development goals, which every country in the world has signed up to. Mm -hmm. There's 169 targets beneath them, and they require that kind of mission-oriented thinking. But if along the way we've dismantled our public institutions by not only underfunding them, but what we talk about in my recent book, outsourcing the capacity within the public sector to others, and the book talks about consulting companies, then it shouldn't be a surprise that then we have massive failures. And also the private sector. I mean, obviously, that's one of the biggest problems we have today. We have a short-termist private sector, one that isn't even reinvesting its profits in the economy. This is a big elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. So one trillion dollars were used just last year just to buy back shares mm -hmm. by large companies to boost their stock prices, stock options and executive pay. So this ultra financialized form of corporate governance is a huge problem. And again, it's not just a critique. I do think we need to reimagine how to do capitalism. We can reimagine the state, not just in terms of fixing markets, but actively shaping and co-creating markets. Mm -hmm. We can reimagine the role of the private sector, not just to maximize shareholder value, but maximizing stakeholder value. And what does that actually mean? And we can form a really different partnership between them. I believe in partnership. I believe we need both public and private actors. But when that partnership or that ecosystem is a parasitic predator-prey one, we have a problem. Mm -hmm. Just like with couples, we would never say just because someone has a partner, it's a good thing. Many partnerships end up in divorce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so what are the characteristics of the partnerships we need to tackle climate change or health pandemics and the digital divide? So just to kind of bring some of these ideas to life and give it maybe a concrete example, is there a specific example that you can think of where an area where governments demand too little of its private partners in exchange for the public investment that yeah. they're offering? Well, there's many different examples I could talk about just really recently with COVID-19. Look at the loan that was provided to EasyJet, $600 million because the airline was not flying and so it required support, just like airlines got globally. Whereas in France, we actually had conditionality attached to the loan provided to Air France and the UK was condition free. So that's not a good use of public money. If we actually have a vision for where we want to go, for example, we want more inclusive growth, sustainable growth, then all public loans and public grants could be conditional on making sure that the private sector is actually treating its workers well, paying them, but especially that they use green and sustainable supply chains. Mm -hmm. That should be part and parcel of the deal. Mm -hmm. And this isn't about the state telling the private sector what to do, but definitely setting a strong direction for the economy where then if a a pharmaceutical company, using another example, wants to have access to a grant, say, that the public sector provides. I'm thinking of the United States, where the government actually invests over $40 billion a year in health innovation. Those kinds of grants and other forms of government investment should be conditional on, at the very basic level, mm -hmm. that the prices then of the outputs, in this case medicines, reflect that public contribution. So instead, we have something called value-based pricing, which literally allows prices to go to what the market will bear, which is sometimes close to, not infinity, but anyway, there's no kind of cap on it. Mm -hmm. And then the public sector has to come back in to subsidize that, whether it's through Medicare, Medicaid, or in the UK, the NHS. So that's a bad use of public money. Mm -hmm. We should become much more efficient, not using the usual way that we talk about efficiency in a static way, but what's the right deal in terms of socializing not just risks, but also rewards. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned your books, and I do want to ask you so much about it. So your new book is called The Big Con, and it looks at the ways in which the consulting industry has effectively hobbled business, governments, and economies. 
before we dig into all of that, I was wondering if you could lay out a bit of the background and history of how we got to that point. Sure. And for me, this book was in some ways a very natural progression from my previous books. I wrote The Entrepreneurial State on the kind of lack of attention on all the government investment that got us everything that's smart in our smartphones, internet, GPS, touchscreen, Siri. There's no real story about that. There's no real theory about how to also do that in the future in such a way that also gets us the kinds of economies we want. The book called The Value of Everything was that by not looking at the role of state investment and just thinking of market failure fixing, we don't have a theory of value mm-hmm. in terms of value as collectively created, not just in the business sector, which of course creates value, but the public sector also creates value. Mission economy was how do you actually then apply this new thinking towards the big missions of the future? And this book says we've got a problem if along the way we've actually outsourced all the capacity and capability within governments to others. And the book focuses on consulting companies, but the McKinsey's, the Bain Consulting, the Boston Consulting Group, and so on, but also to the Circos and the G4Ss of the world, then we won't be able to actually develop those smart public-private partnerships because the smart bit within the public sector has been decimated. Mm -hmm. In the words of Lord Agnew, who's a Tory conservative lord in the UK government, he says we have infantilized Whitehall, Mm -hmm. infantilized government. Even before writing this book in Mission Economy, I look at all the modern day missions we should be tackling. Well, that's going to be very hard if we're not learning by doing along the way. Mm -hmm. And if all the doing is being done by different actors and government thinks it's just there to regulate, administer and fix market failures, we end up having a self-fulfilling prophecy where government kind of thinks, "Uh oh, I'm not capable. I'm going to need someone else to come in and help me. And the point of the book is not to say we don't need any consulting or advising. That's always a good thing. You know, Nurses can consult, doctors can consult, academics, of course, consult all the time. The problem is when the consulting industry mm-hmm. is built on a business model, which almost by definition needs desperate governments. There's no incentive to actually strengthen and make independent the government entity you're working with because then you won't have the follow-on mm-hmm. contract. It would be like a therapist having a patient in therapy for their entire life, you're probably a bad therapist if that's the case. I really like that analogy of the consulting industry as a bad therapist. With a conflict of interest. Yeah, with a major conflict of interest, keeping a sick government sick for their own benefit. I want to dig into the different areas you explore in this book, which is really fascinating and quite, I think, intuitive in a lot of ways, but still quite shocking when you actually lay it all out. What was the most shocking thing you found in your research when doing this book or the most surprising thing? Just how many cases there are where these consulting companies, and I'm talking about the large ones, the kind of big four or big six, depending which ones you include, are on both sides of the street, as, as one could say. So in South Africa, they're advising both ESCOM, a large state-owned enterprise, in in the energy sector, as well as the treasury, Mm -hmm. which is in theory regulating that state-owned enterprise. You gotta A, choose which side you wanna be consulting, otherwise there's a conflict of interest there, or at least be extremely transparent about it and allow the government that is hiring you to make very clear to its citizenry that they've hired in a consultant that is actually working for both sides. So the lack of transparency and the lack of real discussion there is globally on what a conflict of interest that would Mm -hmm. be, let alone all the scandals, massive failures in the sector, which then they're not actually held accountable. Many of the different problems that we know we've had in the history of capitalism, you know, whether it's the privatization trend, whether it's the financialization trend of companies overly using share buybacks, 
whether it's the the downsizing trends where in the 1980s, there was a lot of advice to companies to actually downsize and also to weaken trade unions. Consulting companies were often behind that. Mm -hmm. So we say in the book that the history of capitalism is actually the history of consulting. <laughs> and that's those are trends and some dysfunctionalities mm -hmm. that we've had in modern day capitalism, but also in terms of some modern day kind of scandals, for example, the history behind the Sackler family and its nurturing of a very problematic trend around the opioids, which I'm sure you're, all your listeners know about mm -hmm. and why they were very damaging to people's health. McKinsey was very much behind that. They actually helped in some ways this company that problem was also an outcome of the kind of consulting that was received by the companies. The consulting companies were not saying along the way, hey, this is a problem. Mm -hmm. They, in fact, helped fuel the problem itself. And what's interesting is that then there's all the good stuff that we're trying to get companies to do today by we the world, the people who care about climate change. What's interesting is that almost like with the bat of an eye, the same consulting companies can go from helping to consult on problems that we think today are symptoms of some dysfunctions in modern day capitalism, like financialization, to then consulting on the stuff that we like, battling global warming. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like surfing the wave of any trend, making money along the way. And the problem is not the fact that they're making money, it's that it's surfing trends, milking the system, mm -hmm. often without any expertise on that actual problem. So you would hope that if a government is giving, like the Australian government that gave $6 million to McKinsey to help them with the climate strategy, mm -hmm. that was because McKinsey had the best climate analysis in the world. That's not the case. In fact, in the case of Australia, it's gone down in history as a big mistake because, in fact, the modeling that was done by McKinsey, but also really the decision by government to employ McKinsey instead of its own capacity that it actually invested in. Mm -hmm. in. In Australia, we have CSIRO. I don't know how to pronounce it. CSIRO. <laughs> it's like a public innovation agency, mm -hmm. basically, has a lot of climate expertise. So what was the decision-making thinking that led it to outsource its climate strategy, paying $6 million to McKinsey, instead of really relying on its own intelligence and maybe using McKinsey on the side? Mm -hmm. Right When the consultants go to the center of a system or no longer on the side mm -hmm. advising that system is what we point to. Yeah. So again, it's not about saying we don't need advisors or consultants is what happens when government replaces its own doing and governance systems with others. What happens to its learning? Mm -hmm. What happens to the transparency? And is there any evidence that it actually helps create better outcomes, both in terms of the financial costs, but also ultimately was the mission accomplished? Mm -hmm. And Another example in more recent history was in the UK, the back of COVID-19. You'll recall there were lots of different challenges we had, whether it was personal protection equipment, test and trace, the digital divide, young people locked at home. Did they continue to have access to the digital world or did they not have strong broadband, so on and so forth, all these different problems or the vaccine rollout? These are all complex challenges, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's not about government doing things on its own. But what was really striking in, in the examples I just gave was the decision, for example, in the UK to literally outsource the test and trace to Deloitte, one particular company, where if we look at the history of Deloitte, there's no reason that I can think of at least on why a government would assume that it's going to be able to handle a test and trace system. It's not within its portfolio of expertise. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you are going to bring in a consultant, just think of a hospital that brings in like literally a consultant. But anyway, someone from the outside, maybe to strengthen a team to deliver the kind of outcome they need with patients, you would hope they're bringing in the top experts in the world mm -hmm. who actually know something about that problem. 
So there's almost this lack of confidence in the room with governments where they've basically lost trust in themselves and yet also need the legitimacy. Mm -hmm. So these two issues of not believing that you have the capacity, but also requiring the legitimacy and the rubber stamping by the consultant, this idea that government is less efficient than the private sector and with a really hard challenge like COVID-19 needs a consultant. And then you look at what actually happened, which was a huge failure in the test and trace system to deliver. We should then study that. You know, who made the decision to outsource it to Deloitte? Did Deloitte have that expertise? Did Deloitte deliver also on cost terms if there was a promise mm -hmm. that it was going to be lower cost than having government do it? But especially, did they deliver on the actual outcome that was required, which is to produce a dynamic, modern test and trace system? And the answer is no. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One of the things, the phrases that keeps cropping up and it's kind of the received wisdom that nobody ever got fired for hiring McKinsey, when obviously we've seen the failures that have come about from hiring consultancies in certain areas, why is there no accountability? 
So first, one thing I would say is we shouldn't just worry about the failure because anyone can fail. Government fails all the time. I fail as an academic when I might try to publish an article if it's not accepted in a journal. The problem is, are you then learning from that failure? Are you doing it better the next time? So that lack of kind of learning by doing in the trial and error process and government perhaps not only outsourcing its work to consultants, but actually not learning itself how to do better next time so it's less reliant on others to help it, or at least it's learning how to do that process better. So if the consultants themselves fail, have we learned why? Have we learned how to also have a better contract with those same consultants on how they can deliver better for government? We, we don't. And that's really the problem that I think needs to be examined, both why the decision was made in the first place to bring in a consultant. Sometimes there might be a good reason. Mm -hmm. I think there's often bad reasons, but also how to strengthen government so it is also more not independent in the sense that it has to do things on its own, but literally how to work better with others. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's much evidence that we're getting better. Mm -hmm. I think actually we're getting worse. We are, again, in Lord Agnew's words, infantilizing our civil service. And so... I think unless you have a theory of government that is supposed to do anything more than fix market failures, regulate, administer, facilitate, de-risk, all these words we've just become used to using in the policy kind of world, then there's no reason for government to actually invest within its brain. Mm -hmm. So that's why I've set up a whole institute here at University College London, the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, is I don't think any of these problems, including the one that we talk about in the big con, will get resolved until we actually have a new vision for the economy, a new understanding of wealth creation as collectively created by all different actors, including in civil society. Mm -hmm. Trade unions got us the weekend, not a bad social innovation, got us much better working conditions than we had in the early phases of capitalism. That's part of the wealth creation process. The role of public investment in energy and health and digital, that's part of wealth creation. It's not just redistribution. But all the words, the terms, the storytelling we have of government is not at the center of the system. It's always fixing the system. Mm -hmm. So, And also we're thinking of a whole new curriculum in our master's in public administration, which really is all about collective value creation, dynamic creative bureaucracies, systems thinking, purpose-oriented policies. That requires a new training within the civil service that goes beyond what's been used for the last 100 years, which or not 100, but 50 years around new public management and public mm -hmm. choice theory which even new labor not only espoused, but really drove through the idea that, yes, of course we need government. We're not right-wing neoliberals, but government's main goal is to also become more efficient. And so it should copy basically private sector behavior. That has hurt government if we don't have a vision of what government's for. Yeah. I found that really interesting in the book. And I wanted to ask you about it, how I think it's less surprising that neoliberal right-wing mm -hmm. people would have embraced business first, consultancy, that kind of way. But what I was really surprised at was about the third way, as thought of by Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. They don't come out that well in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and how their vision for how government should operate led to this problem of an over-reliance on consultancies. Yeah. So if the question is simply, yes, government, no government, you know, big government, small government, then those who are saying, no, we don't want just small government, austerity is wrong, of course we need government. But if you don't have a granular understanding of what kind of government, what does it mean also to have a dynamic, smart, creative bureaucracy, then you're going to inevitably start saying, yes, of course we need government investment, but oh yeah, we don't want it to get captured and corrupted. We don't want big, large bureaucracies, so we need to copy private sector metrics for efficiency 
and agility without actually having a theory of what the public sector is for. Mm -hmm. What is public value? What is public purpose? The BBC, for example, talks about public value. It's actually a really innovative view of what public value is. There's no real theory about that within economics. Mm -hmm. We have notions, for example, of the public good. The public good is in, in economics justified through market failure theory. So markets are supposed to work perfectly, but sometimes things go wrong because you might have a positive externality. So the investment in something creates massive spillovers across the economy. So there's too little incentive for the private sector to invest in it because they can't appropriate the returns just to themselves. Mm -hmm. So many public goods would have that, whether it's a defense system, you can't just appropriate it for yourself. You will then have a defense system, which is protecting everyone, whether it's clean water, whether it's basic research and development. So these are all used to justify public investment with the public good kind of justification. So that's basically just incentivizing government investment due to the lack of private sector activity in an area. It's a correction. It's not an objective, mm -hmm. right? So an objective means that we actually have some sort of vision of where the economy should go or a task or a target, whether it's getting to the moon and back mm -hmm. in a short amount of time, whether it's having a net zero supply chain, whether it's having a sustainable, accessible, congestion-free mobility system, all these things require massive amounts of public and private investment. But if along the way we're thinking about the role of the public sector is just to fill the gaps here and there, then we're actually, you know, my theory has been for a long time that we're not going to actually be able to resolve those problems. Mm -hmm. One of the dangers you explore a lot in the book is how this reliance on consultancies has created a massive problem in regards to tackling climate change. Yeah, that there's the problem of both sides of the street. We've got consultancies helping governments craft their net zero targets yep. while also working for the oil and gas yep. industry. So it's the lack of transparency there and a conflict of in interest, which you'd think tackling climate change and stopping global warming would be a goal that everyone could rally around in the way that they did with reaching the moon. And this also has the added factor of being an existential crisis for humanity. So where, I guess I would say, is the hope in disentangling yeah. the consultancy industry from the very nefarious ways it's embedded itself in the way the governments and business yeah. operate? So what we talk about in the conclusion of the book is we don't want to end with despair and being another book that's just about critiquing the system. I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, in all my books, I try to always end with, and here is what we can do to actually think about this whole system differently. The first thing is definitely the transparency. We need to better understand when a consultant is brought in all the different clients it has which might be a problem. And by having it transparent, governments should also be held accountable to if they have hired in, taking again the South Africa example, a consultant to deal with ESCOM, then it should be very clear that they can't also be advising the Treasury and its regulation of ESCOM, right? It's choose one. Mm -hmm. The second issue is what the consultants are actually doing. The problem is not consulting per se, it's a consulting industry where the business model itself, as I mentioned, has no incentive basically to strengthen the actor that it's working with. And we focus a lot on governments, but obviously it's not just governments, it's business as well. So perhaps having as part of the contracts that are uh, designed in that consultancy relationship, that there's an end game, that part of the way that you would measure the success of that contract is whether the entity that has worked with the consultant is now stronger. Is it actually weaker? Does it need even more consulting for the next round? Like, when does this pattern kind of finish? Mm -hmm. Definitely transparency on the fees. Why? Not so much even on the high-end fees. What's really interesting is the low-balling that it starts with. In other words, being in the room for free. Mm -hmm. I've experienced that, 
when I've sometimes as an academic perhaps been advising a government. I had this experience with the Italian government where I was working for free on a commission around the COVID-19 recovery, and there was 13 McKinsey consultants in the room. And I was like, what are you doing here? You weren't chosen to be part of the commission. And they were there to help the government deal with this commission. And they were working for free. (laughs) How charitable. Of course, on the back of the COVID-19 recovery across Europe, we now have the next-gen EU recovery program, which is 2 trillion euros. And that's landing on countries like Italy, which then have all sorts of contracts they need to ditch out with that money. And surprise, surprise, McKinsey and other consultants are definitely in the room and getting the contracts. So much more transparency also in that kind of almost life cycle of the fees where they're in the room for free, getting their foot in the door and all of a sudden get many of the contracts that are associated with having been in the room. Definitely transparency and wire in the room. On the government side, why have you hired a consultant? What other things are they doing that might create a conflict of interest, but also being much more transparent on this kind of dynamic of how fees interact in terms of just almost becoming, having these other actors almost become over-reliant precisely because they're in the room Mm -hmm. initially for free. What's really striking to me is why the governments have hired the consultants in the first place. If it's just for that rubber stamping to get a policy kind of through to make it look like the right thing to do because these smart experts have put their brand on it, that's the problem. Sometimes that's done literally just to get something passed (laughs) through that might have actually created controversy, but because it's rubber stamped with a consulting brand, it looks like, oh, that must be the right thing because the experts have said it's a good thing to do. But also... And what we look at in different cases is where the government actually had invested in the capacity within its own administration or government agency and then didn't use it, almost didn't have the confidence to use it. Or when they use it, but then don't go the full way and think of what's the right deal for the taxpayers that funded that investment. It also comes down to this lack of confidence, which is really interesting, right? If we think of the McKinsey's of the world, they just... the exude confidence, right? When they walk into a room, even when it's just a well-meaning 30-year-old that has actually no expertise in an area, but finds themselves talking to a climate minister or an IBM. So it was really reversing that logic of little expertise, but high confidence. (laughs) What would the reverse of that look like also within government, which is really build that self-confidence through investing within your capacity. So you're actually better able to work with the private sector Our point is never, it's about government doing things on its own. What does capable government look like? What does functional consulting look like? What does a symbiotic public-private partnership look like? It really is, coming back to your first question, how can we reimagine capitalism through dynamic capabilities amongst all actors? And in terms of reversing the current trend, have we actually mapped out, do we understand this decimation of that capacity? within government and how the rise of consulting is in some ways a symptom of that. Mm-hmm. So we're almost out of time. So just one last question. Does the consultancy industry have any redeeming features? So as it stands, I would say not really, except the very smart people, I'm sure, who do work in it. We interviewed dozens of consultants. So it's never a critique of the person. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's been a massive brain drain from the rest of the economy to the consulting industry. So it's not about that there's no brains in there. It's that the, how the consulting industry is currently set up is not benefiting the system. Mm-hmm. So what would a more functional consulting industry look like? And for sure, it's about almost going back to when consultants really just advised. And we're not at the center of a system which is becoming weaker. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. 
that's all the time we have for today. Please join us on Thursday for a discussion episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of Worldview, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 